The government can take anything away. They're not predictable. You may think you have a, a way to predict them, but they're not. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests, Douglas Tengden. Douglas, are you ready to rock? Let's do it. All right. So a little background. Douglas Tengden is a CFA charter holder and is the chief investment officer of Charter Trust Company, where he has worked since 2000. He graduated magna cum laude from Dartmouth College in 1982 and received his CFA charter in 1992. That was the year that I moved to Thailand, in fact. He was the founding president of Vermont CFA Society and remains an active volunteer with CFA Institute. His first job in the investment industry, get this, ladies and gentlemen, was as a mailboy and securities runner in 1974. And we were just talking about how that, that job doesn't exist anymore. He has also worked as a bond trader, currency trader, mutual fund portfolio manager, bank treasury analyst and manager, and private wealth portfolio manager before becoming chief investment officer. He began to produce a monthly market commentary in 1993 and started blogging in 2007. His daily blog is called The Global Market Update, and he produces a one-minute podcast and radio spot which accompanies it. He has been married for 35 years, has six children whom he and his wife have homeschooled. Gosh, if you weren't busy enough, huh? <laughs> and he is active in his church and in outdoor activities. He currently lives in Hanover, New Hampshire with his wife, youngest son who's about to enter college, and a mother-in-law. All right, Doug, why don't you take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life? When I say an active volunteer with the CFA Institute, it's a really fun opportunity I have every year to grade the CFA exam. 600 other graders and I, six to 700 other graders and I from around the world gather in Charlottesville, Virginia in the, in the late summer, mid, mid to late summer, and grade these exams, and it's just a, a, a blast. It's as if you were connecting with, you were a lawyer, and connecting with all top, the top legal minds around the world and grading bar exams. And there's just a lot of fun. You're talking about, you're talking shop. There's no competition. You're all committed to the profession because we're all just doing this on a volunteer basis. And, you know, if you were just hyper competitive and wanted to, you know, everybody's competitive, but if you're hyper competitive, you wouldn't waste the two, three weeks that you have to do to, to, to do this. But it's just, it's just an absolute, wonderful opportunity and and I can't say enough positive about the CFA Institute in terms of advancing the profession my boss back in my in my first job in the in the late 80s suggested that I do the CFA exam she said I'd probably fail because she took it every year and she failed but I'd learn a whole lot and she was right I learned a whole lot but then I passed and she failed and that was a little awkward so I found a different job but you know the CFA has been a, uh, a continuing thread through my career as as I said a bond trader currency trader cash portfolio manager equity manager bond manager and now uh, CIO so it's it's been a, a wonderful way to reflect on some of the deeper truths mm. in uh, in investing yeah and I have a lot of friends from Asia that fly all the way to America to grade those exams and you just think that's a long way to go. And in some cases, they're taking the personal holidays to do that. So I always right. was impressed about the dedication there. And also, 
keeping in mind that it's not like you're grading, there's a lot of variety in what you're grading. I suspect that what you're grading is something over and over and over again. <laughs> well, actually, it's, it's what's interesting. Yes, there is a, there's a standard answer, but the challenge is that people find very, very creative ways to be wrong. <laughs> we, we, we call it shut up and pass. They, they'll say the right thing, but then they'll just do a, a mind dump and they'll write everything that's on their mind and they'll contradict themselves and they say, oh, you had it and now you lost it. So um, if there are any CFAs, list, uh, CFA candidates out there listening that are prepping for their, for their level three, my one piece of advice would be shut up and pass. Keep it put, short. Put the answer down and then move on. You don't need to take the time. And if you don't got it, you don't got it. If you got it, you got it. Just yep. shut up and pass. That reminds me of something my father always talked about. Was He was a salesman for DuPont all of his life. And he had had a lot of training in that area. But he said he taught me about the, the hat trick. And I was like, what's the hat trick? And he said, that's basically when you've got the client. He says he's going to buy put your hat on and get out of there before you talk him out of the deal. So there we go. Great advice. My father, who was in, in security sales, had exactly the same advice. Um, he had a, had a story, and I don't know if we're in the story part of the thing now, but he was going to put, a, uh, put a, a swimming pool into our backyard of our house. And the swimming pool salesman said, that's great. Now, you know, the, the trees that you have, they won't really be a problem. And the roots, they won't cause a problem either. And, you know, it being Minnesota, you know, you'll still use it a couple months out of the year. And there won't be, and he and my mother looked at each other and said, you know, we're going to think about this. <laughs> he had the sale made and then he lost the sale. So my dad learned a great lesson from that. Fantastic. Well, those are great tidbits from your life. Yeah. Well, yeah. and yeah. now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. So my story is not really a terrible investment. It was a very, very memorable experience. I'll, I'll set the stage. I was a bond trader for a mid-sized U.S. bank. And bond traders, if people have illusions about them, we sat on a desk um, with other bond traders, and you would buy and sell United States Treasury securities in the course of the day, hoping to speculate on the price movements, which you know are relatively random in any particular day, but they do evidence certain aspect of limits and trend and, and mean reversion, uh, standard deviation uh, distribution, which when you study them, you can sort of tease out some of the aspects there. And I was doing this, I was in my late 20s. I had built a lot of financial models. You know, we didn't have the same kind of software available. We simply had Lotus 1, 2, 3 spreadsheets, but I had Lotus spreadsheets that, that had uh, macros built into them and macros that built other macros, and they were continually processing the, the price activity, looking for clues. And I had had a good amount of success doing this. I had been hired to help manage the bank's treasury, and I had built um, a whole bunch of computer models to do that. And then they said, gee, could you do this for the traders? And I said, sure. And I started doing that and making predictions. And they said, why don't you take a paper portfolio, see what you can do. I put the paper portfolio to work and I had some success there. And they put me trading live bonds. And it was in the short end. It was two to five year treasuries. And I'd buy and sell 
those securities. I'd be short. I'd be long. I'd always square up by the end of the day. And it was, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was August of 1988. And I don't know if many of your listeners will have an active memory of what was happening in August of 1988, but we had recovered from the 1987 crash. The economy was moving along, but there was some speculation as to what was going on with oil prices, which had crashed in 1986, and they were just starting to climb out. The economy was doing okay, but there's always always squiggles and jiggles, we used to call them back then, always, always turns around. And so I had recently purchased the four-year treasury. We used to have a, a mini auction of twos, fours, and sevens at the time, every three months. And I was in the current um, four-year treasury, and I had seen the price moving up, and it was close to meeting my objective. And then the Dow Jones newsprint a machine gave us three dings, which meant there was a news item. And immediately it says, ding, 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 Fed raises discount rate. And at the time, the Fed was was engaged in a policy of creative obfuscation. That's what Alan Greenspan called it. Um, he was a fairly new Fed chair, uh, having come in in August of 1987. So here he'd been in for a year, and he looked at the economic landscape. And instead of adjusting monetary policy through the Fed funds rate or through the money supply, which was what they were doing at the time, occasionally they changed the discount rate. And that was a surprise. And my modest profit in the four-year treasury turned into a more than modest loss. And I remember seeing that happen and thinking, how can they do this? Don't they know that I've got a financial model that's working and it's working really well? And besides, it's it's the first part of the month and I don't even have my monthly P&L made yet. And this will put me in the hole. All those things flashed through my mind. What flashed through my gut was just an immediate sense of brick that just fell to the bottom of of my stomach and just the wind went out of my lungs. I sort of felt a little bit numb in my limbs. This was not the worst thing ever, mind you. This was not I'd lost someone's entire retirement savings. This was not that I'd seen that I'd risked my institution's capital. I simply had a a risk-controlled position in four-year treasuries. It happened to be about $4 million worth. And it wasn't a, a massive loss, but it was a very, very memorable moment for me. So what was striking about it was that you can put in all kinds of planning. You can put in all kinds of models. You can do all kinds of fancy algorithms to understand what's happening, but the news can overtake you immediately, and particularly the government, which has unquestionably a massive responsibility with regards to monetary policy and financial policy and and fiscal policy. They play an incredible role in every modern economy. I'm not an anarcho capitalist, you know, get the USA out of the financial markets that can't work, never has and never will. But nevertheless, they can change what they're doing and announce a change. And lo and behold, it can have massive effects on your financial position. In my case, a, a trading book it wasn't really a portfolio. And those positions have lasting repercussions. And uh, what? how did that day end? You had closed out the position down by 
I closed out the position and right away. Yeah, I closed right. out the position right away, and I simply watched it. I didn't have the insight to to reverse it. In fact, if I had taken the position and reversed it, I would have made even. I would have probably ended up positive on the day. But you know, my someone told me once that your first loss is your best loss. You know that 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 when the when the market reverses and you you weren't expecting it you need to clear your mind just take your loss and it's over and in that case i simply looked at the market and kept an eye on things to try and understand what the next dynamics were and the next dynamics were going to be priced down which it followed through that day and and i took a short position the following day and and started making um, you know, earning my way out of the hole that I'd made. Some of my friends in the market said, you know, well, at least it was early in the month, Doug, and you'll have a chance to make it back for your monthly book. And they were right. How would you describe, you know, what, what lessons you learned from this? Number one is that the government can take anything away. They're, they're not predictable. You may think you have a, a way to predict them, but they're not. Number two, size matters. Your position size, was it was manageable. I wasn't taking an outsized position. And so I was able to earn it back. And number three, and most importantly, related to number one, we don't know the future. We invest for based on a forecast, but we have to be um, humble about our forecasts and remind ourselves continually that we don't know the future. Got it. Got it. Okay, so let me uh, summarize kind of some of the things that I take away from it. I think one of the things that I'd love to just even talk a bit about is the idea of, you know, one way of looking at this is saying, hmm, how could I structure my next investment so I wouldn't be exposed to this? This would never happen again. And I suspect that the answer to that is that would cost so much in either cost or reduced possibility of return that it would never make sense. So sometimes is this just a case that that's the way investing goes? You know, you got to be prepared for these types of losses. Are going to say this will never happen again. Well, then you have to not invest because you know, as the the, the disclaimers say, all investment carries risk. And you know, as we as I said earlier, we simply don't know the future. We, there's all kinds of things that can happen. Even the most benign investment, a cash money market investment, as the 2007 crisis illustrates, the reserve money market fund had to break the buck. Mind you, they were not the first money market fund to break the buck. There was a mutual fund in Colorado that was a consortium of of, a, of about um, 60 banks back in 1991 that broke the buck because they were, had these banks and the banks had had that mutual fund or that money market fund was was backed by commercial loans through that SNLs had made and they had to break the buck so they were not the first ones to do so you know when the 2007 crisis evolved my company at charter trust we had about 100 million dollars in prime money market funds and we quickly shifted them in 2007 out of prime instruments into government instruments because we saw that that the uh, that it simply wasn't worth it to take the risk of the money market breaking the buck which is what the prime fund did so in prime they were good guys guys, but they got so much money that they started investing in Lehman securities. So that's a big discursus. I'm sorry about the mm. money market funds, but yeah. that was in my it background. Helps. It helps. I'm, I know how that sausage is made. But the lesson that I keep coming back to is we don't know the future and we have to remind ourselves of that continually. Right. And the protection against major loss is the position sizing, you know, in this particular case. I think it's, it's an important thing to recall that 
also another thing about governments, I was just talking to someone the other day and they were asking me about my experience during the 1997 crisis in Thailand, that Epicenter was in Thailand. And what I explained to them was that governments can also lie or mislead. And in the case of Thailand, we had the government announcing the foreign exchange positions and we thought they had 40 billion US dollars, but they weren't disclosing the forward transactions that actually once unwound meant in one day in March, that 40 went to seven. And then it was only a couple more months before in you know the end of June, beginning of July that they said, okay, we, we're out. And also it's very interesting to note as I recall, and I'm not an expert on it, as I recall, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were not disclosing fully the amount of bad loans and of lower quality loans that they had on their balance sheets. And it wasn't until after the crisis that, that it, you could see clearly what was out there. So it's not only that you know, governments have a lot of power to just you know, do something without any anybody expecting it, but also that, you know, they can play with things a bit. And then we could end up, if an investment case that you're making is reliant upon the government, be very careful. Well, it's, and you know, it's interesting you bring up Fannie Mae. In 2005, Fannie Mae was involved in an accounting scandal where they had understated their profits because they mis, they misreported their derivative position. And so by 2007, they still did not have audited financials available. So, you know, some people took losses on their Fannie Mae preferred stock. That preferred stock was always a gamble because there was no implicit government guarantee in their, uh, in their preferred ever. And if you were buying either their common or their preferred stock, you were buying it based on, on a set of promises that had not been audited. And as we know from sad experience when 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 the fox guards the chicken chicken coop he has a tendency to miscount how many chickens he's responsible for <laughs> and, they, and they start and, disappearing and you think wait a minute wasn't there 47 chickens oh no here? no there were always 35 here yeah. always 35 <laughs> you know always 35 a good and reminder always 16 so and that is you know a, a, a uh, a lesson of sad experience about human nature is there are always bad apples out there yep. that will yep. do stupid things in hopes that they will profit from it. Inevitably, they get caught. Inevitably, something bad happens. It, they may not get caught, but they die of of unnatural causes. It, you know, in this business, you know, there simply isn't enough time to play these foolish games of of fraud and and misstatement. Yep. yep. Okay. So, got it. But okay. just to go back to having the government make an unexpected movement, you know, as I said earlier, the government is always involved in in financial markets, and it's interesting you brought out about the Thai government misstating their cash reserves and not netting out their forward commitments, which is, you know, have I was a currency trader in the early '90s, and. You know, that's such a naked obfuscation to say, well, our cash reserves are $40 billion because they didn't net out their, their forward commitments. They simply took the cash that was in the till. And that's not coming from just my conjecture. That's actually, there was something called the Nukun Commission that was, that was a commission set up in Thailand to investigate. And they put out a whole investigation a year or so later. So I read that whole thing since I was a bank analyst at that time and was very interested in it. So right. that's part right. of what was disclosed in there. All right. right. So right. 
based upon what you've learned from this story, and my goodness, you've learned a lot since then, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And let's think about a man or a woman managing a bond portfolio or, you know, it could be an equity portfolio, but they're managing a portfolio and they're going to face this type of situation. What advice would you give them? What one piece of advice? It's a, it's a phrase that I coined. I, I didn't read it anywhere from my, from my writing and my blog. It's, my phrase is, and I have it up on my wall, diversification is the compliment that humility pays to uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, if you're humble and, you know, there's, you got to be humble in this business because, you know, if you're honest, the market's going to humble you. You have to be, you, know, you have to diversify because the, the future is uncertain. The future is indeterminate. And somebody said, why is that the case? Well, it's because the news is indeterminate. You know, the, the story of presidential tweets, well, that's really an old story. Presidents may not have tweeted before, but they, they do make announcements. They do hold press conferences. Sometimes they act without holding press conferences or without making announcements and suddenly mm. just the action happens like raising the discount rate yep. by 50 basis points, which was, you know, you know, not needed at the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> at least from my four year, my long four year position, I, it wasn't yeah. needed. So I'm thinking be humble or be humbled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Exactly. Exactly. But, but, and, and the answer to that, of course, is diversification, whether it's in stocks or in bonds. There's time diversification in terms of spending. You have different maturities. You have different aspects of the bond market you might be involved with. There's uh, position sizing, which, of course, was incredibly important. There's sort of mental diversification that you're using different approaches to look at the marketplace, ultimately to, uh, to assemble a portfolio. You know, at the time, I was a I was a bond market trader, which is very different from portfolio management. I was taking positions and always flat by the end of the day, but had a lot of different ways to approach the market. I did it through futures, through options, through cash positions, and that allowed me to bet on different aspects of, of how the market was evolving. And that provided, even in the context of a government portfolio, a government securities portfolio, a way to diversify how I was approaching. So that's my, my long-term you know, lesson is, A, we don't know the future. That was the late great Peter Bernstein said that again and again in his, in his story. If there's one book I'd recommend, it's The Remarkable Story of Risk by Peter Bernstein, which just goes into the risk management side of investing. That A, we simply don't know the future. And B, since we don't know the future, we have to be diversified. And I love it. It's in my bookshelf and I read it, Against the Gods, The Remarkable Story of Risk, which we'll put in the show notes for the readers, for the listeners, because that is a fantastic, not only, it's not only a lessons, but it's the story of risk, which is so fascinating. Peter Bernstein, by the way, was a, was a fantastic gentleman. I had the only one brief opportunity to speak with him. He joined the Vermont CFA Society when I was, when I was putting it together. Honestly, we needed names on the roster to, we had to fill out like 30 names, and he was willing to join to give us his $50 in dues. Um, he was a founding member of the New York Soci Security Analyst Society, and his wife called me later on to say, this, this doesn't mean he has to leave. Of course not, of course not. <laughs> um, we were we were incredibly 
um, humbled and proud to be able to list him as a as an associate member. It gave a a, a level of of respectability to our fledgling little group. So that was fantastic. Uh, that, that's just a a fine memory of a of a fine human being. So yeah, um, And by the way, I just called his phone number and he picked up. It's one of those things like sometimes you just have to get on the phone and call. And I just called people to join to get our name. And I thought, gee, Peter Bernstein, he's got a house in, I had heard he had a house in, in Southern Vermont, a, a vacation house. I said, maybe he would join us. And long behold, he pick up the phone and give him a call. That's it. Absolutely. All Absolutely. right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal for the next 12 months is to continue to in, in the marketplace. I think we have an opportunity here to prepare ourselves to be ready for the next downturn. I, you know, it's probably not going to be that severe. I'm going to go ahead and forecast, even though I don't know the future. For, you know, the time to, uh, to buy straw hats is in February. By the way, it's May here in New Hampshire, and it's snowing. <laughs> it started to snow outside my window. And the, the time to prepare your portfolio for a downturn is before the downturn happens. And so while there's these, uh, these trade echoes of, of difficulty, the time to prepare your portfolios is, is now when things are looking good. It's able to, to, uh, to put on positions at, I think, reasonably good prices that will be a little more robust than the, than the uh, um, economically sensitive assets that have been doing so well for so long. Got it. Preparing the portfolio. And ladies and gentlemen, we can't know the future, but we can know the past. And we can try to understand the present, put the future into the context of the past and the present. So, and I think that's part of what we're hearing from Doug. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk. Visit my worst investment ever. And while you're there on that website, click on the icons and send me a message if you've got a story to tell. As we end, Doug, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? We can't control the future. We can only control what we're doing now to be ready for an uncertain future. Amen. We can't predict the future, but we can read Peter Bernstein's books and understand <laughs> the past. I love that. That's right. That's, that's a great, right. great reminder. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth, fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.